My name is Dennis Sheeran. And this is Raymond Steinmetz. And we are from the Instant Relevance Podcast. We are proud members of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to right now. Make sure you check out all of the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready, because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hey, today I'm talking with a good friend and colleague. His name's Michael Channon, and we're talking about, you know, just advice for the classroom and, and uh, lessons learned from over time. Michael used to be a, a, a special education teacher in high school and in middle school for a long period of time, and then an administrator. And so we got lots to talk about today, lots to learn, lots to share. Thanks for being here. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Hey, welcome back. Today I got with me Michael Chan, and Michael and I worked together for a long time. And uh, Michael's initial background was in abnormal child psychopathology. He worked as a therapist at Counseling Services of Miami under the supervision of renowned psychiatrist Dr. Abraham Landau in the early 70s. He eventually, by the way, you ought to see these pictures of him with the, the great shirts and all this stuff from the early 70s and the beard he had going, man. <laughs> he eventually taught children with learning disabilities at Coral Springs High School in South Florida and was an adjunct professor in the Special Education Graduate Department of Nova University before moving to Marietta, Georgia. He often presented on the de developmental side of children with learning disabilities. He taught middle school in Cobb County, Georgia for 13 and a half years and then the high school for three years before becoming an administrator for 12 years. He also has just knows just about everything about any movie that you could probably ever name and uh, has a fondness for uh, D. Martin, Jerry Lewis. Welcome to the show, Michael. Say hi to everybody. Hey, everybody. Steve, thank you for inviting me here to your podcast. I need to tell you that working with you for the seven or eight years that we were together was an experience and an adventure, and it's especially <laughs> an adventure that I'll always cherish. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you saying that. We had we had some good times. We had some interesting times. We had what is it? Best of times, worst of times. That's what they say. It was fun. We had we had some really good times, and you know it's funny because. You know, you've never experienced anything until you, you've seen uh, Michael lead the hokey pokey or the uh, um, or some other dance thing as the kids are waiting on the. <laughs> uh, that was Simon says. We'll Simon, talk Simon about says that later. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back to that in a little bit. So, um, so Michael, I had the pleasure of working with you for over a seven year period in a very challenging school. You're part of our team that was focused on changing the climate and culture of the school. You know, we're we're going to spend some time on that in a moment. But before we go there, though, I'd first like to point out. Your extensive knowledge of movies. I mean, where'd your interest in movies come from? And how do you know so much stuff about so many films? And do you have a favorite of all time or a least favorite genre? You know, if given the choice, would you choose to watch these movies or that movie again and again or any others? I frustrate my wife because I'd like to watch a movie five or six times, sometimes in the same month. But as far as my interest in, in, or love of movies are concerned, I remember when I was about four or five years old, my parents would take me to a theater or my aunt and uncle take me to a matinee and i remember the very very first movie that i ever saw was a dean martin and jerry lewis movie called living it up i've seen that movie about a dozen times now i don't know if i see it all those times because i just love the movie or it's more or less reminiscent of my childhood in either case super movie um i always play pay close attention to the um movies that I watch because of the characters. I enjoy character studies in movies. You know, our family was in the restaurant business in Hollywood, Florida, and there were two theaters, the Florida State Theater and the Hollywood Circle Theater. When I would go with my parents to work on the weekends, they would plop me down in a movie theater and say, come back in about two and a half hours. And, and that's what I did. And I remember sometimes there would be a soul in the theater itself. And I'm watching this movie. One of my favorite movies of all time was Mutiny on the Bounty. When I first saw it back in 1962, I was completely overwhelmed. I went out uh, later on, several years later, when DVDs came out. And I bought it. And I watched it several times. And once again, my wife says, how can you watch these movies so many times? <laughs> I, I think I hear the same thing. <laughs> uh, correct. <laughs> Movies are always, they it's it's like my life. It's a part of me. The old black and white films from um, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. 
Um, thinking about being overwhelmed with mutiny on the bounty, my wife and I took our grandkids, Brody and uh, Ivy, to see Mary Poppins Returns. And once again, there I was sitting, just overwhelmed by the production. My favorite movie, or my favorites movies, um, are The Vikings. And I don't know if you're interested in this, but the running time was one hour and 56 minutes. And it was with Kurt Douglas and uh, Tony Curtis. And so I was wondering, I was just getting ready to ask you, because we're not talking about current like things on no. the History Channel. No, 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 no. These, are, these are the oldie goldies. Um, as lonely are the brave with with uh, Kurt Douglas. And by the way, in case you're interested, the running time was one hour and 47 minutes. Rio Bravo. Everybody's favorite. Yeah, I love okay. It. Big Duke Wayne. That was a longer movie, two hours and 21 mo- minutes. And, and you have to understand, I own these movies now and I feel like, ah, nice. People come over and say, hey, can we watch a movie? I love all the Jimmy Cagney movies, Steve McQueen, Al Pacino, Bobby De Niro. Humphrey Bogart. And then there are some like made in the sixties, Judgment at Nuremberg or The Young Lions, and these were long, long movies. Um, the list can go on and on, but we need about two or three more podcasts. You know? <laughs> nice. We, we could do our own podcast just on that, right? <laughs> yes. Nice. Well, cool. You know, it's it's funny because we share this love of movies, and there's different ones. I mean, you you have this incredible share, and one of the things that we like um, is that we like these old comedy teams and. Uh, the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and the Abbott and Costello and, and so forth and so on. And what's really cool is like, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I mean, sometime soon coming out is a Laurel and Hardy. Um, I have no idea soon. when that's coming out, but it's yeah. supposed to be soon. Yeah. I, I can't wait. I want to, I want to see it. I'm hearing good things about it, but you know, all that sort of stuff is just cool. It makes you laugh, makes fun. I can watch it over and over again. And to um, paraphrase uh, um, someone um, who's <laughs> in my life who said, uh, can you just tell me, what is so funny about somebody being hit over the head with a frying pan? I said, you know, it's just funny. <laughs> so, hey, I, it would be painful. That's for sure. Well, they never probably saw the Three Stooges. Exactly. That's well. It actually came right after a Three Stooges short, and I was laughing. <laughs> but hey, the uh, all right. So uh, let's let's get a little more serious here. By by the way, uh, um, when you said the Kirk Douglas and uh, Tony Curtis, you know, my old my old time uh, one of my all time favorite movies. Have you, you have seen It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, right? Correct. Yes, there we go. That's a, Jerry Lewis does a 20-second little, little walk-on, so to speak, and he made the movie. Exactly. He had yes. to run over that hat. Had to run over the hat. Or whatever he does. You know, like, yes. Got to love it. And mm-hmm. uh, um, there was, uh, and then there's the, uh, I think it's called The Great Race that I love. Jack Lemmon. Yes. And, Another uh, superstar. Another one. And isn't uh, Tony Curtis in that one? Yes, he is. Yes. I knew I've... I, I screwed up the first one. I, Tony Curtis wasn't in that one. I think I Jack Lemmon plays snidely whiplash type of character. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And Peter Falk is his, his partner. I forget yes. what his name is. But uh, yeah, good stuff. I don't know the running time on that one, though. I'm That's sorry. a long movie. Yes. It has an intermission in it. Yes. <laughs> so, all right. So let's let's get out of uh, La La Land here. For <laughs> Let's get back on track. The uh, um, you know, By the way, those guys notice that we can rather quickly turn this into like a three-hour podcast. We want to, but it won't be. It won't be. We'll be good. Not today, anyway. <laughs> so... So let's shift to your educational background. You were a special education teacher with a background in abnormal child psychopathology. Yeah, I, I said it right that time. Why? Why did you pursue the field? Of, uh, why did you pursue this field? I just wanted to help kids who had behavior problems beginning in their early childhood. Um, most kids who have any kind of psychological problems, it begins at home, and usually begins within the first three or four years of life. My approach was that of Eric Erickson and his uh, eight developmental stages. And one of my mentors, Dr. Abraham Landau, this is very interesting. Dr. Abraham Landau was a student of Dr. Karen Horney, who was a student of Sigmund Freud. Nice. So it's, I guess, six degrees of separation somewhere. Anyway, he encouraged me to pursue a career in child psychiatry. After working with kids with all of these behavior problems, I thought there's got to be a normal psychology somewhere. Um, And quite by accident, I discovered learning disabilities. My five-year-old nephew at the time was diagnosed with learning disabilities in 1973, and he was going to an after-school program uh, dealing with the developmental remediation problems that a child might suffer in high school, excuse me, in school. 
my sister recommended that I go to this place. It's called the Institute for Learning at Barry College in Miami Shores. It's now known as Barry University. Just to observe, I went there and I met with the director, Dr. Albert Sutton, and I was hooked. I then qualified for a fellowship for a master's degree in exceptional child, child education. Awesome. The, so what, what impact did you say that, that all that, um, you know, your background there had on you as an educator and in, in, in the classroom? And in, in working with kids of all, because I mean, I, when I get to know you, you're an administrator and we're working with all, all kids of all levels and all uh, special challenges and some with, uh, you know, just at all different levels of, uh, of being a kid. And so um, how would you say that impacted you being able to work with Dr. Landau and all uh, in those programs? I found myself in the classroom with maybe 14 or 15 students treating these kids as individuals, not as a classroom. I got into their family life. I got into their, their needs, um, and I addressed them. There was a situation, my goodness, I was at McCluskey Middle School, and for about two or three years, I developed a, a kind of program. It was called our Taste of Atlanta or Taste of Marietta. And what had happened was at the beginning of one particular school year, we talked about, hey, what'd you do this summer? Where'd you go? Do anything fun? And one of the kids said, Mr. Shannon, we went to Red Lobster. So we started talking about Red Lobster and the rolls and all that kind of good stuff. And other kids started chiming in where they went. And this little girl, her name was Jennifer. She was in sixth grade. She raised her hand. And with all due sincerity, she said to me, Mr. Shannon, I don't understand. What's a Red Lobster? She'd never been. She's only been. To, she was only at places like McDonald's. So I got an idea, and this was like, I guess, my precursor in getting to the the community outreach type of situation, which developed into later on my my love for partners in education. I started calling up restaurants in the local area, close to McCleskey Middle School. And I just called these restaurants, like Red Lobster was one of them, Olive Garden, Sonny's Barbecue. And I told them, hey, I'm working with a group of about 15 to 20 students. And they've never had the enjoyment of actually being able to go out with their parents and enjoy your food. Can you do anything? Well, it was like an avalanche. I remember one year, let's see, there were 36 weeks in the school year. For 32 Fridays, I was able to go out and bring the kids a lunch. They would have this, these buffet type of big pans. And all of a sudden, what is this, Mr. Channing? Well, this is salad. This is pasta. This is, I remember Red Lobster also included some shrimp for the kids. The kids literally, she's a pun, ate it up. I mean, they, they just loved it. And I was able to do that for about three or four years. And I got this, you know, reputation and it, it followed me when I went to Lasseter High School about being a partner in Ed. I don't know if I could do that or not. But going back to your original question, my background in psychology really opened the doors as far as understanding a child with specific needs. A lot of these teachers that are coming out fresh don't necessarily have specific training in understanding working with kids that's cool so it kind of made you more aware of what uh you know the different needs that all kids have right mm -hmm. oh yes very cool the oh, yes. uh you know um what uh you know you taught in high school for several years and you were a middle school teacher for 13 and a half so you had a lot of experience being in with different age brackets and you know um what i'd like you to do is talk about the challenges of working with a middle school age child i mean what do you think is one thing that a middle school teacher should know what do you think when that sixth grader walks into the classroom the teacher needs to know that it's this is the age where the personality learning styles really tend to blossom um, the needs of the student can vary such as it needs to be accepted and belong to peer groups and the teacher needs to be aware of these needs my uh, wife was a retired middle school counselor 
and we'd have a lot of discussions. She always used to say that a middle school student, or fr- the, their friends are more important than food. They'd rather go hungry than not hang up, be able to hang around. Now, this was before the cell phone era. Okay, <laughs> thank goodness. I don't know what I'd be able to do if they all brought their cell phones in. Although later on as administrator, if I saw somebody with a cell phone, I'd take their battery and give them back the cell phone, and that would frustrate the heck out of them so they knew. <laughs> You know, I got I got to say this because you mentioned that. Uh, that's that's when we discovered that some of the kids carried multiple set, cell phones that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> My fault. My fault. I'm sorry. I had so many batteries at the end of the year. Give me your cell phone. Hey, I don't. I don't know if you realize this or not, but when we would be at the graduation ceremonies and I would hug them yes. after they got their diploma. I was also handing back their battery. Nice, nice. So, very good. You know, <laughs> and by the way, here's your battery back. <laughs> yes, exactly right. And they, they gave me an extra hug for that. Um, in 1983, when we moved to Cobb County, I began working at Dickerson Middle School. That was my, my start. Uh, and I was an LD, LD resource teacher. Um, the nature of the middle school child can split up into many directions. Of course, it all begins with the family structure. And when you add special education... To the mix of growing up in a family, well, once again, it splits off into even more directions. Teachers have students during a a seven and a half hour day and for the remaining part of the day. I always felt that I wanted to open lines of communications with my student families, my students' families. I entered this profession because I care about kids. And in my opinion, that caring needs to spill over into relating to each and every parent. Just as a side note. I started at Dickerson Middle School in 1983. And I once told this student, his name was Doug, you know, if I ever have a son, my son wasn't born at the time, if I ever have a son, I'd really, really like him to be like you. About three or four weeks ago, we met Doug, his wife, and his two kids for lunch at a pizza place. He's 49 years old, and in my eyes, he was still a 13-year-old skinny kid. Lasting relationships happen when you work with kids at a certain level. And that's what I enjoyed so much. You know, and I got to say this because one of the things that you're getting into right here is that, you know, middle school, especially, but all ages, I mean, they really need adults to take an interest in them. You know, don't you think? I mean, I think that's part of what, you know, they just have this, you know, if you recognize, use their name, talk with them. I mean, it just kind of seems to be, and it just, it, it, you know, they're starting to develop their identity, and I think they have a lot of issues about who they are and what they are and you know where they're going. And and uh, having an adult actually just chit-chat with them about anything. Sure. I remember when I went to Dickerson, or not Dickerson, but when I left Dickerson and I went to uh, McCleskey Middle School, I was a teacher of self-contained students with learning disabilities. My students were with me one way or another for um, the majority of the day. The students may be left for PE and an exploratory class such as art or music. And I had the same students for the majority of each day, five days per week for their sixth, seventh, and eighth grade years. I did that for 13 and a half years, and I'll be honest with you, it was very tough saying goodbye to them when I went into high school. That's cool. That's, you know, it would be that uh, you work with kids that long. <laughs> it's like, dude, yes. Man, can yes. I go? I'll follow you. It, no. <laughs> Never mind. Just, that's funny, though. I, I understand. I mean, because just when you work with kids for four years, you're in a, in a high school setting and you've known them since they entered at ninth grade. And then they you, know, you get to walk, um, you get to see them receive their diploma at graduation. That in itself is just a incredible uh tug at the heartstrings so it's cool even the ones who challenged you <laughs> even the ones who challenged you yeah i mean my last year at dickerson i keep saying dickerson i'm sorry my last year at mccluskey it was tough because for three years i had the same group of kids like i mentioned before and i didn't want to let go for some reason coincidentally enough there was a job opening for an ld self-contained teacher at lassiter high school so it was kind of neat to be able to follow them over there. I didn't really say anything to them. <laughs> and the very first day when I came into my class, what are you doing here? <laughs> but I loved it. I loved it. That's awesome. That's, that's, okay, wait a second. Did we yes. go to the wrong building? Yes. <laughs> um, awesome. So, you know, 
something that I that I will remember most about working with you, Michael, was, was that you you had this wonderful sense of humor and you could make people laugh. Would you agree with me that it is important for a classroom teacher and building administrator to have some sort of sense of humor? I mean, and if you do agree with me, what, why do you think that's so? Okay. When I was at the University of Miami in the doctor program, um, students would meet in small groups to discuss various issues. And there was one particular person in that group very diplomatically came up to me and said that I was good to have in the group because I always interjected humor to alleviate any tensions felt in that group. And I guess it always stuck with me. When you deal with kids with learning disabilities, they almost have this defeatist type of attitude. They don't want to try anymore. They just want to get out of school. They want to be able to make choices. If I quit school, what can I do? Can I get into a job corps? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I'd always find myself just gently kidding around with them. I used to tell them that, hey, we're all the same kind of people. We're all human and, and we're going to make a mistake or two, but it's not the end of the world. And I think having a sense of humor when it's needed is just another way of showing that you care. If you can make a kid laugh, you can make anybody laugh in a tense situation. You're showing something on your part that you care. This class, The new classroom teacher needs to have that kind of flexibility in working with students. And the building administration needs to have it with their staff and their students. I used to kid around a lot, as you probably remember, with a lot of faculty and staff. <laughs> it's an understatement. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you remember the awards night when you diplomatically said to me, Michael, I'd like you to be the MC." Yes. <laughs> and you said, keep the microphone away from him. Well, it's ironic because here I am sitting in front of the right, microphone. Right, exactly right. Um, I think humor helps us connect and helps the message be accepted. There was a movie, Teachers. Love it. Made in 1984. I have to throw this in one hour and 47 minutes. Nice, um, and nice. And that pretty much shows what I just mentioned and the different sides there are to teachers. I mean, there were different administrators that had different approaches teachers that had different approaches and interesting enough i think about that substitute teacher who was carted off at the end of the film because he would come in yes <laughs> and he was teaching a lesson about abraham lincoln and guess who he came dressed to class as it was just this is what has to be done so nice that was, that's one of my all-time favorite movies and i use scenes from it all the time yeah there's the uh uh, Mr. Rosenberg, who uh, is a math teacher who has no control over the class. And his car gets completely... <laughs> they, yes, they steal his car. Yes. <laughs> they, um, yeah, that's. I guess that's not supposed to be funny, but uh, hey. <laughs> and, uh, there's Ditto, who falls asleep in class as the yes. kids all do Ditto work. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that is... Played awesome. by Royal Dano, by the way. That was the, the actor's name who played that. Awesome. And he's a famous actor from uh, yes. a lot of movies. Yes, it's, character. The main stairs character in that is uh nick nolte i think uh, yes. but you know one of those movies that if you haven't seen this from 1984 i know I think all you, teachers have to see it i think without you should. a doubt you should because it's, it's out on dvd it's out there you can find it it's worth seeing we don't get any kickback from that but it's worth no, seeing and my know. favorite character is the substitute teacher and uh it's the whole way he gets in the classroom is even awesome there but uh, yes gotta love it gotta love it what's your name mr gower <laughs> anyway um so with that thing, let's, let's let's move along before I digress totally. Um, you know, I think that you use this sense of humor to help you connect with kids. And, you know, this is where I'd like to, I, I alluded to this earlier, but I mean, we always had to um, find ways of keeping kids kind of focused, not on the reality, but, uh, you know, make the time go. And, you know, whether it was after a football game, whether it was at a basketball game, whether it was at bus duty, whether it was in the you know, just different times, different time periods, kids waiting on rides, whatever, you know, it was quite possible that we'd have all these kids around and, and it created a supervision issue. So you try to gather them around, bring them in and, uh, um, cause they really don't, you didn't want them walking in, in some areas. And, uh, and so they gather around and next thing you know is, is, uh, Michael's got them, uh, doing the, uh, the hokey pokey or Simon says, Simon says was the big one there. And, uh, you know, here you got all these high school kids doing the, doing simon says with uh with michael so you know and, it, and there's nothing better than it's like talk about entertaining because it's like you know today they call it a flash mob or something like that i think <laughs> but okay. but what i'd like you to talk about is i mean you 
you often could be seen. It, I mean, the Simon Says thing was a big, a big deal that you, you put on, and and lots of kids. It's funny how some of I the kids it. managed to find rides eventually. Yes, <laughs> but the uh, uh, but some of the kids loved it, and and the other thing that happened though is that you also would see you talking with kids, and that's what I want to drive this towards. Is that you know we talked about your sense of humor before. What I'd like you to talk about is what advice would you give a teacher about connecting with kids? Every every student or every kid can be reached in one way or another. Teachers need to know that. And they have to take some extra time to get through to some kids. And they have to be able to commit to these kids. A teacher must enter the class, you know, the, the physical classroom with a bag of different strategies, not different tricks, but different strategies, not necessarily only from reading text on how to deal with kids. I can remember when I started out, there were several hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books written on how to become a better teacher. There would be that one kid that would walk in to a classroom and all those books, just had to put them back on the shelf and you had to just, it wasn't necessarily flying by the seat of your pants. It was just more or less understanding. There were a few times, especially when I was at McCluskey Middle School, I remember two incidents specifically. It was mid-year. These kids either moved out of town or they were diagnosed with learning disabilities and it was supposed to be placed into the special ed classroom. When we'd have meetings, I always insisted that the kids be present at the meetings because we're talking about them. I'm not going to be talking about kids behind their back when they need to know right up front. And I remember this one lean, mean-looking kid. He sat down, and he had that slouchy type of in-my-chair-with-your-feet-out, that type of attitude. I can remember specifically saying to him, you don't want him to be in my classroom, do you? No, you kidding me? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a bet with you. I didn't have anything to bet with, but I said, give me two weeks. Give me two weeks, and if you're not happy, you're not enjoying, you're not learning what you're supposed to be learning. And we'll have another meeting and we'll see what else we can do with you. It happened twice that year and I never, you know, I never lost a bet, which was kind of neat. I was able to reach the kids. And, and it's funny, like I said before, you have to be able to pull from a certain bag of knowledge all the things that are necessary to work with kids. If you can't do it, you have no, so to speak, bag then you don't need to be in the classroom. Um, there are a lot of veteran teachers who have just been through it all. Uh, newer teachers need to communicate with these more experienced pros and, and gain as much knowledge as they can. There were plenty of times that I had to place myself on the same level as my students to share that there was a genuine caring on my part. I remember working with little kids, and I remember they'd rather be on the floor. I had no problem with getting on the floor. And working with them. Some teachers feel that it's beneath beneath them, so they wouldn't do it. Um, By the way, that's not a joke, right? It's the no, floor beneath them. It's the floor. <laughs> Thank God it was carpeted. Nice. Um, you talk about veteran teachers. I think you and I have one particular person in mind who have has been teaching for over 45 years now. She's still at the same school, and she's still going strong. And I was so envious of her at times because these kids, excuse me, these former kids of hers would come back to visit with their children just to say hi. And she was able to express warmth to the kids. Wasn't necessarily that she had a sense of humor. I can't tell everybody, hey, <laughs> you have to joke around. You have to be flexible enough, although flexible it accounts. She was just a warm, genuine, caring person. I think that's important what you're just saying right oh, yeah. there because... Because where you do it through humor, others do it through just whatever is them. It's the, the it's their ability that she has that warmth. She has that ability to talk with somebody and and say, "Hey, let me talk with you just a second. And and you're right. I mean, they and she connects with all kinds of kids who others may not be ever a, even come close to reaching. And oh, yeah. and you know, and it is that one of those things that I think that's important for us to actually mention is that it's 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 something in you. It's that willingness to reach out to kids. It's that willingness to talk with them. Um, but it's it's not you becoming somebody else. It's you being who you are and being real Definitely. with them. And so Definitely. you don't have to. You're not. We're not telling everybody to be funny or be a comedian because that's not 
that's not what it is. It's it's actually just that it really has more to do with taking time and an interest in them, and that's whoever you are, not trying to be somebody else. So, sure. well, let me let me go back to what we we're talking about as far as Simon says is concerned. That was a perk. To me, that was a perk about being an administrator and having to stay with a large group of kids after an athletic event. I wanted to enjoy the kids at the school, but went to the school, and they could see me as being flexible enough to enjoy their company, which I did, which I did. I loved being with them. Oh, and I got I to gotta say this now. I got to remind everybody, these are high school kids, all right? So anybody who thinks yes. that high school kids won't let you be goofy with them. Oh, <laughs> I'll tell you. And I'm going to tell you. community, too. I'm going to tell you something that you didn't know about. Uh-oh. Uh, you didn't pay them, did you? No, but it was fun. <laughs> anyway, um, we'd have to stay with them anywhere from 1030 to after midnight. I remember another administrator and I driving these kids home at 1245 in the morning. But it didn't matter. It was, it was great times um, because it, they, were, they could have been straight A students or they could have been the students that were more or less always in trouble. But as a group, we were getting a kick out of one another. And that was important to me. Um, I was, I wish there were more educators across the board that really enjoy their students, uh, not only in the classroom, but outside as well. Okay. I don't know. I, I, some teachers feel that they don't have a life. They were in the classroom. They have to do their work. They have to get their lesson plans done. And student as far as they're concerned sometimes might be secondary as far as the caring element is concerned when i was in like i mentioned before well i didn't mention this before when i was in uh, the middle school situation for so many years my students and i would have what we called a dinner out this was absolutely fabulous we would choose a restaurant and it usually was because of me all you can eat <laughs> they would bring their own money their parents would drop them off and then pick them up um, these experiences allowed us to bond outside of the classroom, not only with each other, but the parents sometimes would hang around and talk and watch us. And we were able to teach the children how to interact in a public place, which happened. A lot of times they never went to public places to interact, as well as a, like a subtle lesson as far as leaving a tip. You know, if I mentioned 10% to them, they would say, what? Math? You didn't tell me I had to do math. <laughs> Uh, I did this for all of my 13 and a half years as a special ed middle school teacher, and we had a blast. But one thing I have to tell you that you don't know. Oh, I don't remember when it was. I think it was, I had a very large group after a Friday night football game. And we played Simon Said, it seemed like for about hours. Monday rolls around. And as you know, our hallways could be quite congested. And I was at one end of the hallway, and the kids were coming toward me to go to class. And I yelled out, Simon Says. They stopped dead in their tracks. <laughs> I loved it. Anyway. That's nice. Very yes. nice. Yes. <laughs> oh, I recognize that voice. Well, yes. Yes. Did he say Simon Says, or can yes. I go? Exactly <laughs> right. That's funny. Nice. Very nice. Mm -hmm. But you know what? One of the things that I want to do is, you know, I don't think anyone who, who has ever met you would say that you're quiet and reserved. I don't <laughs> and, know why. And, and by the way, I mean, this is in a good way. All right. <laughs> you talk with people. Matter of fact, when you were focused on connecting community partners for the school, you created connections that the school had not ever seen. Um, it, it, that's one of the things that uh, you took on. And, uh, and what you did was you created a community partner program for the school. Would you say that it's important for a school to connect with the community? And if so, why? I believe that every community should support their schools in a number of ways. Uh, the first being the original support group, which are the, the volunteer moms or the dads or the grandparents. You got to understand, everybody says, oh, I could volunteer when my child was in you know, elementary school. But it's just as important for you, the parents to be there and visible in middle school and in high school. It's, it's the front line. They are the front line in greeting others into the child's school helping out in various offices, classrooms, the cafeteria, the media center, and so on. Um, when I was a partner in education liaison between the school and the community, the intention was to benefit the students only. As I would state to those potential and established partners in ed, one of my goals here is to provide a light at the end of the tunnel for our kids. 
it's real important that they know where they're going and there's people outside that are willing to help. Sometimes the kids would uh, actually get jobs at these partners' places, which is kind of neat seeing them later on. Sometimes they'd hang around the school and say, hey, whatever happened to this kid? Whatever happened to that kid? And then they started developing some of the partners and I started developing like a mini job placement. I felt like we were in the college. Um, the community members, they would establish certain visibility rights, so to speak. They knew, the kids knew who these people were. They'd wear a little Caesar shirt or, or whatever, some kind of uniform. And um, they'd give the faculty and staff some perks to show the community's appreciation. They'd give presentations in the classrooms. So they were at least two or three times a week different community members, different businesses were quite visible at our school. I know some teachers who reached out to local businesses to arrange guest speakers to the classroom, which is really, really neat. Um, Several individuals outside of education who are part of the school's community who would thoroughly enjoy coming into the classroom to discuss what they do and sometimes even to work with students on a somewhat regular basis. Um, I remember there was a meteorologist. It was a weather personality. I believe it was one of the news networks. I think it was CNN. And the kids would come to class and he would just speak about what's a cold front, what's a front, what's high pressure, what's low pressure. In 15 minutes, the kids, their jaws were dropping and they they, they realized, hey, there's somebody out there who'll come to my school to talk to my class. I just seem that it just seems that giving kids the momentum of knowing that, hey, they have people that come in and help them is one of the most important things. And they, they, I think our attendance went up a little bit because they didn't know what to expect. I think it's cool. I, th- I think that, you know, um, reaching out into the community, it, it did multiple things. One, it uh, it made the community aware that uh, about all the great things that are going on in this school and that there are children inside those walls that uh, that uh, are not uh, what the news media would paint them to be. And, you know, and I think another right. thing is that trying to get them as involved as possible um, really paid off twofold. One, the kids started seeing them as a resource. And uh, and then the other side of it was they realized, you know, because it, it wasn't about money, even though you know, we're not we don't have no problem turning away money. That's exactly. It. Exactly. Right. We'll be more than happy to take your money. But it was it was about getting them to do all those things you're talking about, which is speak in classes, help tutor, help do the, you know, help run an after school program, um, come in and speak and share with them the skills that you have to think about future jobs. And uh, and after a while, what starts happening is the kids start recognizing them and doing that, you know, wanting to be part of their groups. And I know like some of them we had in some of those afternoon school programs was very cool. I, I think if nothing else, it really made the. Uh, the school and the community start feeling it as one. And, and we're talking beyond parents because that's what was really cool about what you did. You had, I mean, you had reached out all over the place. We had um, not just restaurants, you had different uh, shops and different um, companies, uh, different uh, um, in- industries represented and stuff like this that were uh, becoming part of our school. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking that, uh, um, that, that in itself, even though it took a lot of work and effort on your part, it uh, paid off for the kids to see, hey, people outside of the school care about what we do so there was one student that we both know and um he got a scholarship good soccer player went to georgia tech he he, his wife and 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 they knew each other since they were like in eighth grade and they eventually got married and he moved to texas and he became a a successful part of the, the the Houston, Texas community. Well, during all of this growth that he had, and I don't know if you know this or not, he decided, or he and his wife decided, he wants to give back, not to the community, but to the school that we were at. And every year, I think it's been going on now for four or five years, they pick out a student through the references of their teachers, and they help out with offering a one thousand dollars scholarship. Nice. So that for our kids to be able to turn around and become a member of the community to give back to the school, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm just overwhelmed. That's so cool. So let, let's 
kind of shift gears here. And you know, we've been talking about community. One of the things I'd like to do is let's take a minute and talk about the importance of a classroom teacher connecting with parents. You know, just talk a little bit about why you think um, it's worth the time and effort. As a former special education teacher, that was one of my main job descriptions, to hook up almost immediately with the teachers. I think as soon as a teacher receives a student roster, contacts on one way or another should be made on behalf of the teacher. They should be able to reach out, call the parents, and say, hi, your son is in my social studies class, and I just wanted to make myself visible some way or another and let you know that if you have ever have any questions, and this is what parents enjoy, if you ever have any questions, don't hesitate to call me. I know a lot of the teachers um, nowadays have a blog, which also can be helpful in, in letting parents know what's going on in the classroom on a regular basis. But as far as I'm concerned, one of the most important factors in establishing the important line of communication is just letting the parents be aware. Of course, there's parents who are working, there's single, single parent families, some kids live with their grandparents, it doesn't matter, they have to go home somewhere. Those kids need to know, and I'm not saying the teacher's tattling on me <laughs> like they used to. Um, what, there's something wrong with that? <laughs> Never mind, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, my parents were around still. They tell you about the phone calls they received. <laughs> Anyhow, um, if they go home and a mom or a dad during dinner says, you know, your teacher called today. You're doing a really great job in the classroom, and I'm really, really proud of you. It's always been teacher would call, you're in trouble. It's not like that anymore. I think teachers have to share the positive moments you know when a, when a kid is a a c student and all of a sudden a couple of b's appear get on the phone tell them about it teachers have access to to kids phone numbers you have to every roster that's printed has a phone number now some of the kids might resist why'd you call my home <laughs> what is wrong with you and they talk just like that, right? <laughs> They're like, no, that's how I used to talk. <laughs> I'm sitting here trying to be refined. Um, it's the kids need to know you care, and that's another thing. If you show that you're communicating with the parents, it's another branch of showing that you care about the kids. I love that. That's you know, that's that's a big part of what we got to do. Is we got to, you know, if if you don't reach out, how do they know that you care? Is it just words? Yeah, true, true. Good stuff. So, so let's shift gears and talk a little bit about a lesson you may have learned about the classroom and teaching after you became an administrator, because eventually you leave the classroom, you become an administrator. And when you look back on it, is there something that you learned that, you, you know, by being an administrator and going and visiting classrooms and such or being around and listening to kids or dealing with issues? What's one of those lessons you learned about the classroom? When I was a teacher in the classroom, my classroom was my entire world. Um, they were my extent. the kids were my extended family. Um, sure, I'd share techniques and procedures with other teachers in the special ed program because if I tried to do it with regular ed, they say, what are you doing in my class if you're a, reg you're a special ed student, uh, teacher, student, okay? <laughs> um, a lot of times I'd listen to what was going on in the classroom with regular ed teachers without saying a word, which was very, very difficult for me, as you know. Um, when I became an administrator, that whole world changed. I would walk into a classroom and I was flabbergasted to see all the neat things that were going on. The uniqueness of some teachers' approach was sensational. I thought, why didn't I think of that when I was in the classroom? For like as long, yeah, I, like I mean, really, I mean, you just sit there saying, wow, you could do that? I mean, I didn't know that. You know, for as long as the class lasted, each student was an active participant in the learning process. I know when we had to go in and, and observe the classroom, we, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever the time was, I found myself in more than a few classrooms just staying there because I couldn't get enough of it. You know, um, to see kids who were not really interested in showing up to class to begin with sit there and just take be an active participant 
That says, says it all about a teacher as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I hear that. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things. I know visiting a lot of classrooms, I'm with you. You're going, wow, man, that's cool. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but unfortunately, there are a few teachers that spent their time attached to the chalkboard or, I love saying it, the smart board, uh, without ever turning around to check on what was going on. On occasion, the teacher would ask if everybody knew what was being taught. And, well, let me put it to you this way. There was a little checking for students' understanding what was being taught teacher was at a class uh, at the, the smart board writing things down you see this guys without turning around see this does everybody understand it <laughs> take that as a yes and he kept on going <laughs> yeah okay because just like there's the good stories and there's also the bad oh, ones that you start but i would go, say mm. maybe 85 percent good 15 percent learning how to be good gotcha you know yeah cool they uh so let's we're getting into some advice here. You know, it's, you know, if you could take something back in time um, to you as a teacher, what would it be and why? And I, I want you to think about everything from a strategy, a tool, something technology wise. I mean, what would it be and why? And, I, and just as an example, for me, it would be mini whiteboards. I'd love mini whiteboards. I mean, it, it, they help you talk about checking for understanding. You could have them with each kid at their seat with them with their own marker for it and their own little towel to wipe it off. And you could do, you could say, okay, now what I need you all to do is blah, 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 blah. And then they write it out and you go walk around and you see their answers. So it takes away the, uh, the whole idea of having to come to the board and work it out. Instead, they can all work it at their seats and you're, you're probably going to get more reaction instead of a worry about, you know, some, is somebody going to make fun of me? Am I going to get it wrong in front of them? I, that would be one tool I would want. I could see more participation as far as that's concerned. Um, when I was teaching in the, in the uh, Stone Age, <laughs> I wish there was more availability of technology. I went to various businesses and I asked, oh, I would ask these uh, people that I knew in different businesses. And we're talking about the 80s. Um, hey, do you, what do you do with these computers when you, when you replace them? And we're talking about 286s maybe <laughs> or, or 386. And I'd ask them, would you be willing to donate the computers to my classroom? Um, they did. There was no problem there, but like I said, the computers were very, very old. We got most, you know, we got a lot of use out of them. Um, my background is in developmental, um, de building developmental skills, and I use them to to help build developmental skills that a you know that a teacher would or a student would have difficulty with. I remember that when I was finishing up my career at uh, Osborne High School when we were inundated with smart boards. Um, I'll tell you, when those smart boards got into the classroom, both the teachers and the students just embraced that technology. You know, the idea would, and I never even thought of the portable whiteboards, but that would have been something in advance of everything else. That's cool. You know, it's, it's, it's so neat because there's so many different things that would be so helpful, but, uh, but uh, just, I, I like thinking about that. You know, if, you know, people talk about time travel. Well, if I could do time travel, what would I like to do? I'd like to take myself some mini whiteboards. <laughs> or, hey, and if, if somehow it could function, because I think yet you, you can't analyze this too much. If I took YouTube in the past, would that work? I'm not too sure, but hey. <laughs> it might have been. It might have been. <laughs> uh, I remember sitting in a graduate class, and this person had a nice little, on the, on the table, calculator didn't even have square root okay 125 dollars and i said well there goes my budget for the year i mean you just <laughs> couldn't afford a lot of this stuff and right there was a time that um in cobb county where at the beginning of the school year teachers were given a gift card for a hundred dollars to supply their classroom right it's very difficult when a pencil costs a dollar <laughs> so Woo. yes i know so let's 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 get into some more advice. Let's let's talk classroom management for a minute. What's one thing, idea, strategy, or just advice that you would suggest to a teacher who's struggling with classroom management? They need to know that organization and flexibility, as well as structure, is crucial. If they don't understand that, then they need to go to a couple of classes and and, and learn about it. You need to be, the teachers need to be consistent and follow through so that each student knows what is expected of them at all times. Um, as a special ed teacher, I did have a partial whiteboard on the chalkboard. And 
I'd write, I'd put down today's date and underneath the subjects that I taught and page numbers, exercises, whatever. So the kids knew what was expected of them on a daily basis. They were able to develop a routine. And I've seen a lot of regular ed teachers um, that are able to, to develop a routine where the kids sit down and they know. And it's not sit down, shut up, and open your book. It's just that, you know, there's more warmth in trying to structure the kids. Um, the actual layout of the classroom, like study centers, I don't even know if they have study carols anymore. Grouping of desks can vary from teacher to teacher as well as student to student. Uh, I remember before we moved up here, I was an adjunct professor at Nova University and I taught grad school classes in special ed, especially in the area of classroom organization and management. That was quite the experience because I wasn't really teaching the grad students anything. They were... They weren't learning anything for the first time. So what happened was with, the, with that class and a couple of classes after that, it became more like sharing techniques and procedures from the classroom. Um, years ago, Cobb County used to have these staff development and in-services on classroom organization and management. I, I don't remember when they ceased to exist, but... It was important to a lot of teachers. A lot of the teachers walked out and saying, hey, I'm going to try this as soon as I get, you know, as soon as I get back to my classroom. I can remember as a teacher, if something didn't work, kids left, I'd move the furniture around. And the kids got a kick out of it. I mean, they really did, okay. And Mr. Janet, this is not working for us, so we want you want us to sit here? I said, yes. And I'd have their little names and put their names on the desk for about the first day or two and it worked well, but then when I started moving the classroom around frequently, I think I struck a nerve with the kids, and they all said, hey, come on. But it was fun. It was fun. And I think teachers can't get stressed saying, this isn't working. This isn't working. I mentioned the bag of strategies. Go into the bag of strategies. See, you know, just to see what else would work. Go to a teacher in the next room. They've been around a little bit longer. They can help. And I've actually seen situations both in the middle school and in the high schools that they get great ideas from sharing with other teachers. And all of a sudden, their classroom and organization skills, their management skills, they peaked and they were very happy and they, they conducted the class repeatedly the same way. And the kids got used to it and the kids were learning. Um, I can't help but go back to the smart boards. I think that was one of the the greatest additions to the classroom because kids are always tuned in to technology. Um, there was a teacher at Osborne. He was a math teacher, and he had a hookup to Southern Polytech, who was also one of our, well, Kennesaw State now, but they were also one of our um, partners in ed. That was one of the first partners that we got, and they would have students come over and and talk to our students and what it's like to go to college. But more importantly, they had this live feed uh, in one of the math classes. And this was a advanced math class. And these kids just blossomed. And a couple of other teachers on their planning would come in and just observe. And they would take back to their classroom so many different ideas. And you'd see it's working. The system is working. It's not that you're a classroom teacher, you are an out, in an outstanding group of classroom teachers, and there's a fund, a fund of information that you could just cash in on only if you just ask for it. That's cool. That's good advice because, you know, sometimes what happens is we think we're on our own. You know, as a, as a classroom teacher, we, we, we can feel alone, and especially in a high school setting or, um, or a middle school, and you can feel like you're just on your own. If I close my doors, this is just my world. And we've got to get beyond that and find those teachers that we know are doing a, you know, a wonderful job and say, hey, can I come watch or here? This is what I'm struggling with. And what I hear you saying is just ask and see what you can do and, and observe and then get some help with it. Sure. Awesome. Awesome advice. Well, last two questions. And here we go. If you're given the chance to talk with 100 brand new teachers who haven't started teaching yet, what advice would you give them? I want to go on record right now and say... 
listen to no one who says run for your life. Okay, it's 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 not, you know, it, it's not a necessary thing to say. Oh my gosh, what did I, what have I gotten myself into? Teaching is not a part-time job. It's a professional lifetime commitment. There could be tears. There could be happiness. Veteran teachers are, are your main ally in your career. Learn from them. And I can't emphasize that enough. Learn from the veterans in your building. Uh, when you walk into your classroom on the first day, remember that it's your classroom. Uh, be willing to take chances in the way that your classroom is set up. Students 50 years ago today, and today rather, uh, need to know that they're walking into a learning environment. You need to establish connections with your students. Treat each one with the individuality that they deserve. But my first year at Osborne, there was a teacher that I would evaluate. And you'd have a bunch of information on the teacher to look into and stuff. And I said, hey, look, you've got to get these classes done. You have to take certain classes to renew your certification and twice a year I would speak to that one particular teacher and oh I'm going to get it Mr. Chen I'm going to get it and what I ended up finding out at the end of this teacher's stay at our school was to him teaching was just like another job like, okay, I'll teach here for three years knowing that I don't have to do anything for three years except go into classroom, I'll pick up a paycheck, and that's it. And then next year, I'll start looking around for another job, having nothing to do with education. Teachers understand, thankfully, 99% of them do say, it's like I said before, it's a total of a lifetime commitment. You have teachers that, like our friend, at our, our, our former school that have been, have been teaching for over 45 years. She has no interest in going into administration. Um, some kids, uh, some teachers walk into the classroom or the building for the first time and they want to set the world on fire, which is great. But they also sometimes take their eye off the prize, the, eye, the, the prize being the students. My feelings are, don't take your eye off the prize. The students are very, very important. I know you're thinking about becoming an administrator, so you're not stuck in the classroom. But the classroom is the, the, the most rewarding experience that any teacher could ever, any educator could possibly have. That's awesome. Great advice. Great advice. So here's the last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If given a chance to say thank you, who would it be and what would you say? Um, that's a, that's an interesting one. It's a difficult question for me to answer because I never look toward them as making a difference. <laughs> okay. I went to a private school from kindergarten to fourth grade and the teachers were, were quite structured from sixth grade to, excuse me, from fifth grade to, to high school. I attended five different public schools, all in the same county, fortunately. No one stood out until I went to college and, and took a few psychopathology classes with Dr. Ferdinand or Joseph Gonzalez. I owe him a lot, especially when I completed my master's degree and he encouraged me to continue at the University of Miami in their doctoral program. Um, there were, however, some principals that I worked with in Cobb County that were outstanding. Dale Pass, um, Steve Shelton on the middle school level, uh, Fred Sanderson, who got me into being a, a high school administrator, I don't know whether to thank him or just say, oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> um, but the one that made the biggest difference in my life was this guy named Steve Maletto. He's still a great mentor. I still learn things from him today. He's a great colleague. And now I'm with him every. He's a friend. In all three of those roles, I've learned a lot from him, and I'm still learning. You're too kind, Michael. Thank you very much. Well, uh, it's I, the truth. I you, mean, you silenced me. I didn't, uh, no, didn't see I, that coming. I, so, it, you know, but thank you. You know, it, it was interesting because the first thing I remember about you was he's 39. You should still be in the classroom. <laughs> I mean, hey, and you had all this experience. It's just, you know, thanks. And there were so many times I wanted to to come into your office because I know you were a social studies teacher, and my favorite subject throughout my academic career with social studies. 
So now all we talk about is movies and record albums and TV <laughs> series. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael. I greatly appreciate that. And as a note, one of the things I remember from us first meeting is that uh, there was something that had gotten me upset and was making me I was angry and I needed kind of like a timeout. And you said something funny, which made me laugh and made me, you know, calm down and get a little over it. So, you know, hey, that's that's awesome. So it was a great time working together. And thank you so much. I'm humbled by your comments. Michael, thank you for joining me today. I I, it, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed get, catching up. I appreciate you sharing all these ideas for teachers and administrators. And have fun at the movies because I will be too. And uh, let's do this again soon. Yeah. I want to do this again as quickly as possible. I love it. I love it. There's so many things that come up. Thank you. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.